This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Claire Nichols, and we're going back to the 80s on the book show today. The Scottish writer Andrew O'Hagan is about to take us to working class Scotland in 1986. His novel, Mayflies, is a celebration of misspent youth, of male friendship, and of post punk music. Music like this. You're listening to New Order, and in Andrew O'Hagan's novel, a couple of best mates are off to see this very band perform in exotic Manchester. Now, Jimmy and Tully are the best of friends. They obsess together over movies, over music. They're discovering drugs and politics, and they're sharing their very deepest secrets. The book lets us spend a wild weekend with the boys as they visit this music festival. Then we're reunited with them 30 years later when Tully phones Jimmy with some terrible news. He's got cancer and only months to live. Andrew O'Hagan, welcome to the book show. Hello, Claire. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So reading this book, Andrew, I was thinking that Tully is the kind of friend that anyone would dream of having. He's loving gregarious, he's funny, he's thoughtful. Who was, the, who was the Tully in your life? Well, you know, every boy and indeed every girl has their Huckleberry Finn, has their best friend who sort of gives them permission almost to grab life with both hands. And in my case, it was a man called Keith Martin, uh, who was the most uh, glamorous person in Ayrshire at the time. There's a bit of competition for that, I have to tell you. Um, <laughs> But Keith was a fantastic um, record collector. He had the highest cheekbones in Scotland. He had the best collection, record collection in Europe. And he was the most politically engaged uh, 16-year-old that anybody had ever met. And Keith was my best friend at that age. And as I said, it was like getting permission to be who you really wanted to be, having a friend like that. It's, it's love, isn't it? It really is. I remember um, a wonderful thing that... Uh, Joni Mitchell said when she was talking about all the guys in Laurel Canyon and that part of the 60s, she was mainly talking about Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And she said, watching them get their blend together, it was just boys in love, mm. you know, and that's something I identify with. You know, when it comes to storytelling, uh, romantic love gets all the big headlines and all the Oscars indeed. But the love of friends is actually the other very stable, if you're lucky, the very stable thing in your life or the constant, you know, the holy body of romantic love is one thing and it's a beautiful and wonderful world of narrative. But for me, and with this book, I wanted to concentrate on friendship over the course of a life, try to offer a complete picture of what friendship means as you go through the years. Let's talk about you and Keith as young guys. I believe you guys are in a band together. Can you tell me about the band? Yeah, we were in a, a brilliantly ordinary band called The Big Gun. Um, we released one single, like most uh, bands in the mid-80s in Scotland, you know, we, we came together with great fanfare and great fellowship, uh, played a handful of gigs, recorded one single and then split up <laughs> <laughs> to go off to back to work or to university or to go on with life. And I'll never forget that that single that we released uh, found its way into the hands of the legendary British DJ, John Peel, the late John Peel, who was a great man in the vanguard of breaking new music and new bands for decades in Britain and renowned all over the world uh, as the expert in that field. Well, I'll never forget Keith, myself, the other boys in the band, 16 years old, all with the same haircut, you know, <laughs> glittering eyes, gathered around one of those very 1980s record players, you know, it was on a stack with a smoked glass top and listening to the John Peel show one February night and suddenly Peel's unmistakable voice says, and here we have from Irvine in Ayrshire, the big gun, and he played our single. We all punched the air and danced around the room, hugging each other and, you know, never in my life with all the lovely and lucky things that have happened to me has anything quite matched that moment. And I can still remember verbatim the DJ's words. He said, um, 
Melody breaking all unheralded into the programme. I must say, I like that immoderately. Of course, we had to look up in the dictionary what immoderately meant, but <laughs> we gathered it was good. Oh, how fantastic. What did you play in the band? Well, I was the linchpin of the whole band and I held a tambourine and shook it every three bars <laughs> and tried to look cool. Vital so in your job. band, that person was called the, you know, the most important person. At least I like to think so. In fact, they could have done very well without me. But um, they were being my mates, they never wanted to chuck me out of the band for lack of range, you know. I used to pretend to people and say, oh, we broke up for musical on account of musical differences. But of course, we didn't have a note between us. <laughs> Lots of fun, though. Um, of course, you didn't end up being a percussionist. You ended up being a writer. What about Keith? What happened to Keith? Well, one of the things that was so central to our friendship is that we put a lot of thought into trying to enable each other's freedom. I think a best friend in the end is responsible for They're the guardians of your potential. And that's the kind of friend he was. When I met him, he was working in a lathe, as a lathe turner in a local factory, earning peanuts, hating his job, you know, following his father's routines rather than his own. And I was trying to get through my O-levels, as they were called then, my exams at school to get to university. Although I came from a family where people didn't generally go to university, my brothers, to whom I've always been very close, they worked in factories like Keith too. Um, so that was the pattern for working class life uh, in Scotland in the 80s. But Keith and I concentrated on trying to, as I say, guard the potential that we spotted in each other. And I always knew that Keith should get out of that factory, and he did in the end. I encouraged him into night school. I gave him not only the books that I'd collected over the years when I was done with them, but the bookshelves that housed them as well. And he studied hard at night school out of the factory and uh, went to a teacher training course and he became what by general consent among hundreds of pupils over the 20 years that he did it, the most inspiring English teacher in Glasgow, saved a lot of other young people and guarded their potential in the future. So that's what happened to Keith. I went off to London, became a writer and he became this inspiring and always very left-wing English teacher. Of course, then Keith got sick. Are you able to tell me about what happened to Keith? Sure. Um, you know, maybe once or twice in a writer's career, Claire, they'll write a book straight from life. Mm. Even as a novelist, with all the freedom that being a novelist allows, you'll find yourself writing a book that cleaves so closely to reality and to your lived experience that it almost takes your own breath away. And for me, Mayflies is that book. Uh, the Keith Martin that I've been talking about at the age of 50 um, found that he had esophageal cancer and four months to live. Um, with treatment, he actually lived a year from that diagnosis. And that last year of his life inspired the second half of Mayflies, which is the last year. What they did, how that loyalty that they'd established in their childhood and how that friendship and the depths of it played out, um, it became a matter of responsibility as James, the narrator of the book, uh, tries to help his best friend to die with equanimity and grace and peace, which was what he asked of him. And during that last year, uh, Tully, the character based on Keith, asks him if he'll write a book about them. Please mm -hmm. write about us, he says. And so the book became a self-fulfilling prophecy of a kind. But for me, all the laughter and all the joy of a lifetime's friendship went into the book. And from the responses I've been getting, I can see that um, I'm, over, I'm quite overwhelmed by the way people have responded to this book. And I, I think I understand why. It's because they can slot themselves into the story. We all had a best friend. We all had a gang, perhaps. And we all had a question in our minds about how it would play out over the course of our lives and how we'd be able to turn that old, original loyalty into the kind of sticking together towards the end of the road that we all hope we could manage. Why write this book as a novel and maybe not a memoir? I mean, you are a journalist as well, Andrew. Yes, it's very much a novel in that, you know, uh, I took the liberties that you take formally. That's to say, you know, the structure of the book, the pattern of the relationships, um, the, the sequence of events, you know, they have to work in the novel's terms. They, they don't cohere uh, only in terms of what happened in actual life, that would that would be a memoir. And as you rightly say, um, I have a, a journalistic strand. You know, I work quite hard on long pieces of reportage. Quite often, I'm a contributing editor at the London Review of Books uh, here in the UK, and a lot of that work is 
memoir-based or certainly um, investigative. And I, I know how to do that. So uh, had that been right for this material, I would have certainly felt comfortable going ahead and writing a true life memoir um, about that friendship. But it seemed to me that the dimensions of the story were more universal and I wanted to um, be able to take the story in its own direction. So for that reason, it just spoke to me as a novel. I could hear the scenes playing out and all the laughter in them and the camaraderie of those boys. You know, I felt that I could construct it in a novel in a way that was utterly accurate for the novel rather than relying on scraps of memory, if you know what I mean. Mm. So, Andrew O'Hagan, uh, you and your friend Keith, much like Jimmy and Tully, grew up in Ayrshire in Scotland. Uh, this is coal mining country and you would have been a teenager around the period of the coal miner strikes, of course. I was wondering how that shaped the politics of you and your friends growing up. There were two huge political issues in 1984 to 1986, uh, which is the time that that friendship really blossomed. And those two big issues were, one, uh, the miners' strike here in the UK. Many of your listeners will be familiar with uh, Margaret Thatcher's great battle with the miners, which she ultimately, as she would describe it, won. But actually, it can't be understood as a win. It was a terrible loss for the mining communities that uh, are close to where we grew up. You know, we were surrounded by heavy industry at one time in this part of Scotland, and it was a devastation to a whole way of life uh, for women and men and children, for grandmothers. Um, Everybody who had depended on the patterns of life associated with mining, um, their lives fell apart. And it was part of a gigantic cruelty in our minds that the southern government, as we thought of it, led by Margaret Thatcher, never really understood what the, those communities were all about. And so that that is one of the political backbones of the book, is that Tully and... Jimmy, as we did in life, collect tins and groceries for the striking miners. And Tully, especially, as Keith was, was incredibly charismatic. He'd walk up to the front doors of these people living in these housing estates and poor areas of Ayrshire and pat their shoulder, give them the groceries, tell them to stick with it, that we'd win in the end, that the strike shouldn't be broken. I mean, he was only about 15 then. And the charisma and the sense of political dedication was absolutely crucial in that friendship. And I look back on it with, a, a, with nothing but love, actually. The second big strand was CND. We all bonded over um, the idea of uh, opposing nuclear arms, which was such a live issue in the 80s. Of course, it's still a live issue, but it's slightly been superseded by other live issues at the moment. But in the 80s, there were all these, always these huge demonstrations. I mean, there was a revival of the CND movement that had been very popular here in the 60s, uh, I'm sure everywhere. And uh, we bonded over that too. So there was always politics at the forefront. Pop music wasn't a frivolous thing to us. It sort of involved a lot of political commitment. A lot of the bands that we loved, you know, The Smiths, The Fall and New Order, Joy Division, all those bands were absolutely sort of single-minded in their pursuit of political ideals as well. So it was a whole culture, you know, and that's what a novel needs. It needs a whole culture behind it in order to really breathe and live. Yeah, music, politics, but also movies are incredibly important to these boys. Oh, yeah. Movies were everything to us. I mean, Keith and I particularly loved movies. I mean, we spoke in movie dialogue most of the time. I mean, it was a good job that there wasn't a sort of fresh air copyright on uh, quoting lines, because if there was, we would have been in debt constantly, <laughs> quoting from those kitchen sink dramas, those rather depressing but lovely movies that came out in Britain in the 1960s or late 50s, you know, Saturday night and Sunday mornings starring Albert Finney. Or um, A Taste of Honey, that wonderful story of set in Salford in Manchester. You know, just amazing uh, black and white version of working class life and the struggles therein and how people overcame the expectations of their parents in order to find their own freedom. We loved those movies. We couldn't stop quoting them, as I say. And I wanted the book to carry some of that natural uh, movie love. You know, The Godfather. I think we watched The Godfather several thousand times. <laughs> That's how to misspend your youth, you know? <laughs> you know, the, the cliche about working class people all over the world and indigenous communities and people who don't live glossy, you know, highly successful economic lives, is that they're somehow downtrodden, down in the mouth, endlessly depressed, uh, inarticulate, you know, unintelligent. You know, 
Nothing could be further from the truth. The working class culture that I'm writing about here was vivid, funny, bright, endlessly generous, and actually quite uh, political, as I've said. And the people that are at the centre of the book, those young people are having the time of their lives. They don't have a coin between them. I mean, they have to scrabble together to get drinks and to get tickets for gigs and all the rest of it. But I think people identify with that. There is an innocence in it that uh, money can't deepen or betray. You know, their lives don't get better just because they had money. In fact, as the years go on, what they look back on is a certain sort of proximity, a closeness, a codependency that they'll never possibly have again. And, you know, that's a story that many people can identify with. But I underscore the point that this cliche about working class people, even today, that they're somehow depressed, uneducated, unable to um, participate in the culture. We couldn't have participated in the culture more. You know, those movies, that music, you know, a band like The Smiths seemed to us to be the pinnacle of a way of thinking about the society you lived in, and a way of thinking about personal style, and a way of thinking about glamour and politics. And I identify with that. That's what the Smiths represented to us, a way of answering back Margaret Thatcher with style and elegance. Did you ever get to see the Smiths? Oh, tons of times. Then I would have walked over broken glass, and I think on several occasions did, (laughs) to get to see them. I saw them actually in Manchester at that huge concert, which is at the centre of Mayflies. I mean, the boys club together and travel uh, to Manchester, which seems like a kind of nirvana to them. And on that stage, and that particular day, the 19th of July, 1986, in reality, was a huge festival called the Festival of the Tenth Summer, which was an, uh, the tenth anniversary of punk rock. And there, on the stage, you know, wrapped around a microphone as if his life depended on it, which it did, was Morrissey and the Smiths. And unforgettable concert. You know, in these COVID times, it's hard to uh, not to shed a slight tear thinking about a hall full of thousands of happy young people gripping onto each other, sweat lashing everywhere as they just adored in the same way, with the same full heart, the band that was in front of them, the Smiths. Wow, it sounds like an incredible experience. I was interested to know, Andrew O'Hagan, amongst all this chat with your mates and music and love, when did you get the inkling that you were going to be a writer? I was one of those quite sort of predictable kids who always knew what they wanted to be. I mean, I had plastic typewriters when I was a child. I was one of those kids who was single-minded. I was a reader. I can't say I wholly understood what a writer was. I mean, I remember meeting a poet at the, a place called the Harbour Arts Centre, a poet called Norman McKay, a great Scottish poet. And it's the first writer that I'd ever met. I was really young. And I looked at him as if he was this strange, exotic creature from the Amazonian jungle. You know, he seemed sort of tall and he had big eyes and he had a notepad in his hand and this amazing voice and a singularity of vision, which was so new to me that I thought he was beyond human. And I later learned that that's what a writer, that's, he was called a struggling writer, but to me, totally inspiring. And I worked out from there that you could actually, you could actually make a living if you were lucky. You could, you could set up shop as somebody who used their imagination for a living and spoke back to the culture that had made them, uh, if that's the way you chose to go. And so becoming a writer from quite a young age was just an ambition. I'm delighted and feel lucky to be able to say that I'm one of those fairy story characters who who got to who got to do exactly what they dreamed they might want to do. And you had the help of a, a brilliant teacher. Um, there was a chapter, the second chapter in this book, Mayflies, uh, introduces us to one of these teachers, which I think we all remember that one teacher that changed your life, that set you on an incredible path. And in the book, there's a lovely tribute to a fictional teacher. But I think this is based on a real experience too, isn't it? You would be absolutely right there. That teacher, who in life was called uh, Mrs O'Neill, took me aside at quite a young age and said, you know, you're a performer, you're the class clown, and you enjoy making people laugh, but actually you've read more books than I have. And you could get to university. And That was the first time anybody had said that to me. I mean, I thought she was joking. Um, You know, boys like me didn't necessarily go to universities then. And 
every night she would, after school, she would, you know, keep the light on in the classroom. And we'd go through Thomas Hardy and uh, King Lear and the poems of the Irishman W.B. Yeats, many of whom's poems I still have by heart. But he, it came from that great act of generosity in the part of that teacher. I'm sure so many people, they do say to me that they have a teacher, they had a teacher like that, but I had never really found enough of them in literature. And I thought, I want to write that teacher into this novel about that special relationship between a child and an a far-seeing adult who just takes you in hand. And she was brilliant, that teacher. She actually died the same year um, as Keith did. And so the book became a sort of elegy to that great teacher and that kind of friendship too. I know that uh, your teacher, Mrs O'Neill, identified herself to you later in life, um, you know, said that she was thrilled with your career. How do you think she would feel about being immortalised in a novel now? You know, the first thing she would do, I'm sure, is get her correcting pencil out and, uh, you know, change a few words and put in a few semicolons, which would be annoying, but also quite typical of her. <laughs> <laughs> but more seriously, she would be delighted. I mean, she, she she told me once, she came to a reading of mine and she told me afterwards that um, when my first novel had, was luckily, luckily enough nominated for the Booker Prize, she heard me on the radio talking about it and the interviewer had asked me on BBC Radio 4 how I felt in the car going to the Guildhall, the ceremony where the book is held. And I said, I thought of Mrs O'Neill, I thought of the teacher who'd got me through those exams and introduced me to that literature and stayed in that Scottish classroom in the middle of that very cold winter, uh, the lights all burning as she took me through the magic of Shakespeare and Yeats. She actually heard that being uh, broadcast and she said as soon as she heard those words she burst into tears because she said that that had been her ambition that she'd always hoped that you'd save as she put it a few boys and a few girls because it was a quite a rough school and there was no guarantee that people were going to make it um, to their desired place and she was responsible for that and it it was very moving to hear her talk about it I mean I was as moved as she was the idea that, you know, in circumstances like that, you can actually pull each other through. And she certainly did that for me. And you've had this incredible career at the London Review of Books, as well as being a novelist. Uh, how did you get the gig at the London Review of Books? Well, one of the things that um, I can't say that my young friends provided me with, I probably had it naturally, was quite a lot of cheek. Mm-hmm. So I arrived in London straight from university and sort of cheeked my way into this very posh literary paper, the London Review of Books, you know, where every single person, as far as I could see, including the cleaner, went to Oxford or Cambridge. <laughs> and it was quite an intimidating world, you know, to go in and sort of be looked at over the tops of half moon glasses by all these brilliant people, um, many of whom went on to be, you know, um, stellar writers, novelists themselves. And I remember just sitting in this chair being sort of interviewed by them and thinking, this is a bit like, I imagine, being interviewed by the Stasi. You know, it was like an Eastern European situation. I expected a huge lamp to be turned on me at any second. Anyway, whatever I said, and it was all cheek, they they smiled a lot and they, they, they gave me the job. So that was uh, the very beginning of things for me. I mean, I was only 21. And to start as a young editor in this big magazine was quite quite a heady experience. And and you're still there, what, more than 30 years later? Well, in a semi-detached way, yes. I mean, I'm, a, I'm the editor-at-large now, so um, I get to speak to these wonderful editors uh, on a regular basis, and we work out, you know, things that we might do with the magazine, things that I might write. And I've written some of my biggest uh, stories for the magazine. I mean, it turns out now, uh, nearly 30 years later, that I've, I've written nearly 300 pieces for the London Review, as well as writing for the New York Review and sometimes the New Yorker and others. But the London Review has certainly been my team. You know, I grew up in a house where you had your team. You didn't change that team. You didn't compromise on it. It went to the centre of your identity. If you were for Celtic Football Club at the age of six, then you were for Celtic Football Club with your dying breath. That's the way I feel about the London Review. They are my team. Is it true that uh, you still use a typewriter for a lot of your work, Andrew? Yes, I do. I still use a typewriter for first drafts. And I'll tell you why. It's, I think that much as I depend on computers for every other stage, and they're brilliantly handy and just uh, irreplaceable now, there's something about the original composition that on a, on a keyboard, 
uh, a laptop, you sometimes I think that the sentences can slightly run away with you. Um, that's just a personal prejudice of mine. Whereas if you have to actually correct it properly, you know, you have to roll the piece of paper in and you have to unroll it out if you make a mistake. It causes you to change the pace of composition. You take your time and you're also, if you need to beat down on a key, then you really want it to be right before you go any further. So that's just a personal view of it. I mean, I really like uh, producing a draft on a typewriter first, if I can. Is it hard to get typewriters these days? Um, it's probably hard for everybody else to get them because I own them all. <laughs> you have to come to my house. <laughs> but I'm about to set up shop any minute. If the writing doesn't go well the next time round, then I'll just sell the typewriters. I've got dozens of them now in various places. And the thing that's hard to get sometimes is the ribbons. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, thank God, there's little... Um, dedicated obsessives who still sell typewriter ribbons. But, um, of course, my daughter, who's 16, thinks I'm mad. She thinks I'm like a kind of Victorian madman in a sort of heart, you know, bashing away on this old machine that's completely unnecessary. Um, she's got a point, of course. But um, I ignore it and crack on with the typewriter. It just I like the thump of it and the sound as well, by the way. It sort of punctuates your thoughts in quite a nice way. But, you know, they're getting harder and harder to find, so I've got to look after these ones that I've got. Absolutely. Uh, before I let you go, Andrew, uh, you mentioned uh, living in these strange COVID times. And I've been talking to a lot of writers and thinking a lot about what uh, this this period of history is going to mean for novelists going forward. Have you had a think about, you know, what sort of fiction we might see come out of this time of disconnection, this time of fear? It's a really good question. And, you know, we've all been thinking about it at some level, even subconsciously. And I think that um, the rumination or this, the space that's allowed writers to ruminate about the relationship between the individual voice, maybe in a quiet room, maybe in lockdown, um, the relationship between that voice and this larger society, between the mores, the manners and the values of our societies, the politics of our lives. I think those ruminations will bear fantastic fruit. I think we've got a renaissance ahead of us in terms of the work of the imagination. Readers, I hope, will have a richness to look forward to because that reset was, I think, or I would argue, was due to happen, Blair. You know, we'd been through uh, decades where we'd actually gone back on some of our great innovations in terms of civil liberties, in terms of freedoms. The election of Donald Trump, which of course is a terrifying pre-COVID event, represented for many people a sort of winding back of the clock to a sort of sexist, racist, intolerant and wholly um, narcissistic way of going about society. And I think if anything good has to come out of this devastating pandemic is that a reset is occurring and the imagination is set free. The rumination, I hope, has given given way to a new sense of freedom and what's necessary. So there's big struggles ahead, but there'll be good ones. And I think a lot of them will manifest in the world of books. Oh, I can't wait to see what comes next. Andrew O'Hagan, thank you so much for your time today. What a pleasure. Thank you. And Andrew's book, Mayflies, uh, it's published by Faber. And make sure you've got some tissues for this one. hard year for all of us but if you can spare a thought for the debut writers whose books have come out this year there's been no launch parties at the bookshops no talk at libraries all those things that they probably imagined when they were writing their manuscripts so here on the book show we are doing our bit to showcase some of the debuts that have come out this year Imbi Nimi's book is called The Spill Here she is to tell you all about the book and just how she got published. The Spill is essentially a story about sisters. 
So we have these two sisters, Nicole and Samantha, who were in a car accident with their mother, Tina, in the early 80s. And there's a question mark about whether or not Tina was drunk at the time of the accident. Um, and then even though no one is particularly hurt in that accident, we see the impact that accident has on the two sisters' lives over the course of three or four decades. always found that the sister relationship the most fascinating of all the family dynamics. I mean, over the years, I've kind of collected all these stories, a bit like a bowerbird collecting blue and shiny things, the way I like to explain it, um, of, of sisters, of those stories of miscommunication and misunderstanding and jealousy and resentment. But at, at the very heart of it is this kind of fierce loyalty. So, you know, you can complain about your sister, but if someone says anything bad about your sister, you're going to come down on them like a ton of bricks. So that's sort of like that that two-sidedness of that sister relationship. So interesting. So a lot of rich material to draw on. Everything you do, I want to do. Everything you know, I want to know. Talk about our secrets till the morning comes. Then you let me try on all your clothes. When I say I'm a bower bird, I'm, I, I, I do collect stories from other people. And in fact, at my online book launch, I made an apology to all the friends and family whose stories I had borrowed for my writing. And I promised to pay them back by way of baked goods. Any book is, is like the most complex recipe that that you're ever going to make. So there's so many ingredients in the spill, but if I had to choose one key ingredient, or the hero of the dish, it would be this car accident I was in with my mother and my sister. My mother was not drunk at the time, I hasten to add, um, when I when I was 10. And I remember being alongside the road waiting for the ambulance to arrive and looking over at the wreck of the car and thinking that the car was fine. And then later, after we'd been to the hospital and been checked out and everything, um, seeing the car again and realising the car was wrecked. And I always thought that, in a way, that was a really great metaphor for, for my experience of the accident. I was fine. I had a couple of stitches. But it really fundamentally changed who I was as a person. I, I was much more cautious and, I, you know, that, that sort of realisation that, bad things can happen to you. They don't just happen to other people or people in movies or TV shows or books. Um, they can actually happen to you. And I, I think I was very different after that. I wanted to be a writer from a very early age. I had the experience of being published in my school magazine when I was five. And that feeling of pride and uh, accomplishment um, that that I had at that time is actually one of my most vivid memories of my childhood. And I uh, just took a very long time to do it. Uh, 45 years later, or 44 years later, um, I finally got published. I, I wrote obsessively as a teenager, lots of journaling, short stories, and then didn't write for something like 12 years. But, you know, that that desire to write really sort of came back up to the surface. So in 2013, I actually sat down and wrote the first paragraph of my first manuscript. Um, and then a year later, I wrote the second paragraph of my first manuscript. I'd had a little bit too much rejection. Um, I had a number of um, knockbacks. I got very close a couple of times and I'd essentially forgotten that I had entered the Penguin Literary Prize when I received the email saying that I was shortlisted. So suddenly all the, the manuscripts that I'd pushed to the side, or one of them at least, was back on the table and then I won. If I had to give any advice to writers who want to get published, I would say this. Don't write to get published. Write for the love of writing. There have been so many great um, novels that have come out in 2020 in this, you know, this horrible year. And so choosing one feels like choosing my favourite child. So 
I, I'm going to play it safe and I'm just going to go with the last debut novel that I, I read and that is Kokomo by Victoria Hannon, which won the Victorian Premier's um, Published Manuscript Award um, same year that I got the, the won the Penguin Prize and it is beautiful. I, I just, there's something about the last sentence which has just stayed with me. Bravo, Victoria, beautiful book. Imbi Nimi there via Skype with a recommendation for Victoria Hannon's book, Kokomo. Uh, you're going to hear more about that one soon on the book show. Imbi's debut novel, The Spill, is published by Viking. And now on the book show, Sarah Lestrange is here. Hi, Claire. As uh, Sarah... I always enjoy you discovering new trends in fiction, uh, and you've got one that even took me by surprise. Can you tell me about your latest find? Well, I've found a bunch of books that feature octopuses in the story, Claire. Octopuses. Okay, and that's octopuses, <laughs> not octopi, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Octopuses I checked, and it derives from Greek, not Latin, so that's why it's octopuses. Okay, we've all learned something. But tell me more about this trend that you found. <laughs> Look, I, I noticed it um, when I was reading Robbie Arnott's The Rain Heron because there's octopuses or rather cephalopods, which is the, the broader group which includes squids, um, in that book. And then I was thinking, oh, but then there's Chrissy Neen's erotic story in Triptych and Tasmanian author Jane Rawson's From the Wreck sort of features an octopus-like creature. And I was curious about what was going on. Yeah, I mean, do you have any theories on why this particular animal might appeal to authors? Okay, well, I have a theory and it comes down to why we all love Hank, the octopus from Finding Dory, the sequel to Finding Nemo. So Hank is clever, wily, He's a shapeshifter and he has almost these superhero qualities and octopuses have all of these and also there's that other element that they're just so different from us, all those tentacles and suctions and it makes them, um, I don't know, like a creature of mystery. Yeah. And I just think that that's what draws the novelistic mind to them and um, but I have asked a writer, it's not just me thinking about these ideas, <laughs> <Okay>. because, <laughs> because there's a new debut novel I've found called The Octopus and I by Tasmanian Erin Hortle. And this book is about Lucy after she's had a double mastectomy due to breast cancer. And Lucy lives on the Tasmanian Peninsula with her boyfriend and she's uncomfortable with her new body. And the the octopuses that live in the water near where she lives somehow provide a way for her to reconstruct her sense of self. So Erin, what made you look into octopuses for this novel? The octopuses were actually the starting point of the novel. I heard just this incredible anecdote about, well, it's more than an anecdote, it's, it's something that actually happens about these octopuses that live down at Eagle Hawk Neck on the Tasman Peninsula. So Eagle Hawk Neck is an isthmus that connects the Tasman Peninsula to mainland Tasmania. And on certain nights, particularly when there's a really big swell on the ocean side of the neck, heavily pregnant female egg-carrying octopuses will emerge from the bay side of the neck and they'll crawl up onto the isthmus and try to make a journey across um, this sort of stretch of land that's maybe 50 to 100 metres wide and has a highway running across it to try to get to the open ocean. And I heard this story and it just seemed so incredibly strange and striking, this this idea of these these strange bodies emerging from the water. Um, the, and I just couldn't stop thinking about them and thinking, why, why do they do this? What is it that drives them to do this? And so I did a bit of research into um, octopus reproduction and found out that female octopuses, what they do is they extrude thousands of eggs and they hang them up in sea caves 
And then they jet water on their eggs for, it varies between the species, but for around about a week until the eggs hatch and the mother octopus dies absolutely spent. And it sort of, the story straight away just struck me as a complete tragedy because it reminded me a bit of Charlotte's web and the end of that story when um, Charlotte dies, but her babies are released into the world while Wilbur watches on. And so I just kind of, um, and and so the reason that the octopuses make that journey across the neck is because on the open ocean side in Pirates Bay, there's heaps and heaps of sea caves, so it's perfect habitat for them to extrude their eggs. However, on the bay side of the neck, they get trapped in by mudflats and it's not very good habitat for them. And so the theory is that possibly um, the neck used to actually be in narrows and the octopuses used to swim through, but now that the neck's been fixed in place um, with sand dunes and, and now a highway, the octopuses come and become trapped on this pathway that they used to be able to take. Um, and I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It just struck me as this incredible story um, because it was this story of maternal sacrifice and I think that's really striking. But there's also this journey narrative and the potential imagery of octopus roadkill was just too, I don't know, I've said striking a few times, but definitely too striking for me to be able to leave alone. And so I just wanted to find a way to tell the story of these these stunning creatures. So are there signs along the isthmus there saying beware of octopuses? <laughs> no, no, there aren't. <laughs> Maybe there should be, though. <laughs> that would definitely draw the tourists. Well, there's enough tourists going down there also because we should say this leads to Port Arthur. Yeah, it is. And so I sort of um, have jokingly said it's a, a major highway. It's a major highway by regional Tasmanian standards. Um, but in saying that, it is actually a relatively busy highway because it does lead to places like Port Arthur and the Three Capes track, which up and well up until recently um, had obviously been tourist hotspots. the octopus help Lucy come to terms with her changed body after breast cancer and a double mastectomy? Because she has uh, these encounters with octopuses, first to pickle them, and then she has a, a deeper sort of uh, communion with them. They, they help her understand her body. Well, they almost don't help her understand her body. It's something that she's kind of constantly grappling to figure out but she sort of says it's something she feels like it's something that exists outside of language she can't quite figure it out but my whole kind of starting premise with Lucy's fascination with these octopuses was this idea that like Lucy is a a woman who is living at Eaglehawk Neck and who is constantly grappling with this idea of what does it mean to be a woman, what does it mean to be a female? What is my body now that it's been changed? And she's feeling like her body has somehow gone wrong. And so I really wanted to bring this character who's thinking through all of these ideas into direct contact with these octopuses that are so kind of excessively female in and excessively kind of maternal. What do you mean by that? excessively female you mean in their physicality yeah in their physicality so octopuses the way they I mean there's been strong associations between octopuses and the feminine something about the way they move um and ooze sort of about the place there is something um something that has historically been yeah symbolically associated with the feminine but just also the idea that you know these are like when we say they're heavily pregnant octopuses they you know there's been research into them and they're talking about the fact that um i think a word that was used in a seminar that i attended and it was a word used by marine biologists he said that they were ripe Mm -hmm. they were so pregnant they they were ripe and they needed to get these eggs out of them so it's this idea of this when i say excessively female it's excessively there's something fertile and maternal and I would kind of add in that that notion of motherly because there is that sense of of care but they you know it's it's a desperate drive that they have to cross the isthmus and that desperation is driven by their sexed body and so I sort of thought well I wonder what this character of Lucy who is kind of thinking through her body and thinking through these ideas of that her body is somehow missing something or she's missed these opportunities, what what she would think when she saw these octopuses and how she might 
potentially sympathise with them or empathise with them in ways that don't quite make sense but just resound with her, I suppose. And then the added layer to that is the fact that she first becomes introduced to these octopuses when she meets two old women who are catching them to pickle them. And so for Lucy as well, it's not just about her association with those octopuses, but it's the fact that through the octopuses she's making these connections with other women and creating this network around her of, of other people who she can connect with in, in this place um, on the Tasman Peninsula outside of that kind of heteronormative dynamic in which she'd been living previously. And it seems like quite a blokey culture generally, L- lots of blokes with boats. Yeah, very much so. We'll be fighting at close quarters with the most tenacious of all sea beasts. Stay clear of the tentacles. They'll seize anything within reach and hang on to the death. The only vital spot is directly between the eyes. 40 feet in surfacing, sir. Now, it's interesting, like in popular culture, the octopus is this enormous creature that takes down ships. But in reality, you're talking about quite small creatures, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, that idea of, of the octopus being this creature that takes down ships and, and often through that it's it, you know, gets confused with this idea of the giant squid. It's this idea of this unknown creature in the depths um, and, the, you know, it, it symbolises or it, it, it shows something that is so completely other to us and that's been a really strong tradition in thinking around octopuses. So um, a really obvious example, which is often quoted in sort of pop science articles, was an octopus researcher in the um, mid-20th century, Martin Wells, made a comment which was that, you know, they are the closest things to aliens on Earth. He was talking about the fact that they are so different from us. And I think that idea of the fact that they're unknown or the fact that they're different is something which has persisted throughout, you know, a a lot of writing on the octopuses, kind of up until quite recently as we've come to know them in much more detail. And it's really interesting to kind of think through this idea of of similarity or difference. So um, essentially, and I can't think of how many hundreds of thousands of years ago, but evolutionary speaking, at one point we did have a common ancestor with octopuses, but then that ancestor split into what became vertebrates, um, one line that became vertebrates and the other line that became invertebrates. The line that became vertebrates, um, you know, the, the I suppose we could say the apex of that evolutionary trajectory is the human. And a lot of people have argued that the line that became invertebrates, the apex of that evolutionary trajectory in terms of intelligence is the octopus. So there's this idea that we are incredibly different because, you know, we're the apex of these two different evolutionary pathways. But at the same time, so much research um, recently into octopus physiology and psychology is geared to kind of producing um, knowledge or proving ideas about why an octopus might be actually quite similar to us. So things like there's been research into whether or not an octopus has a capacity to play or how we might prove that an octopus has personalities and are distinct from each other, that idea of mirror recognition so that they can recognise the self, um, that they learn vicariously. So that they actually, because they have that intelligence, they are in some regards quite similar to us, but at the same time, they're still so other to us. Um, and it's really interesting kind of thinking through those ideas of what's similar and what's different and how do we use those ideas of similarity and difference to think through our relationship with them. Because the human uh, world is quite centralised in terms of how we process the world, you know, through our brain. Uh, and But the octopus, it sort of experiences the world through those wonderful tentacles. Yeah, it does. And it's so interesting. Like, so um, I kind of realised, I mentioned before, that I wanted to bring this character of Lucy in contact with the octopuses. And I, so I, and at at the time I sort of thought, right, I'll use Lucy as this kind of vehicle to tell the octopus's story. And then I got myself to a point where I told the scene with the octopus crossing the road, which was 
precisely what I'd set out to do, but I felt like I hadn't actually told the octopus's story. What I'd done was told Lucy's story. And so I decided that actually I wanted to try to flip that scene and write it from the octopus's perspective and just give it a go and, and sort of see what came out, um, which, you know, I felt like an urgent thing to do for some reason and also felt like the most bizarre um, goal to set myself. And I, I spent quite some time thinking, how on earth will I write an octopus's perspective without it becoming twee or lame or feeling childish? I felt, um, you know, concerned about about how, I guess, how it would come out. Um, and so I kind of thought, right, well, how, how do we write a human's perspective? How do we write a human, particularly a human in a place? And I thought, right, well, often, you know, one technique we use is, is some kind of sensory language because we'll think how, how is that human experiencing the environment in which they're, they're in? And so I did a lot of research into an octopus's sensory capacities and I found out things like um, an octopus skin. So, we, you know, we were talking about... Um, that, you know, their capacity to perceive the world. An octopus's skin is covered in what are called phototransduction cells. And these process the light in much the same way a human eye does. And so essentially they can see with their skin. So like their whole body has that capacity to process light and, and you know, and um, comprehend that what that light means. But they also taste with their skin and they obviously touch with their skin. And so I just thought, right, well, how on earth you know, do you actually write a kind of scene that, that is showing this creature that that experiences the world in this way? You know, like we can understand it through through the analogy to eyesight, but actually it's just this incredible physical, I don't know, physical capacity. It's like how, how do you actually use words to represent that or compose that into being and in a way that might let people speculatively imagine what it might be like to be an octopus moving through the ocean or, or moving across the land. Well, this seems like a very good time to see how you did that. So can you just read from the very beginning of your book? Because we open with the octopus. So it opens with a short section called Crossing Isthmus. My body is brimming, is pulsing, is purring, is ready. The world moves so slowly as tide washes with inhale and exhale. It was enough before, but now my body is full and I notice too much and I touch, I taste, I see the fish filth clotting my skin. I notice it is not clean enough for my eggs and my den so snug with its doormat of crab husks, not enough for my eggs. The world sighs slowly, but I need it to sway swiftly. I need currents to swirl and wall and rush. I feel the roar pulsing and purring and promising and rumbling. I leave my den, my body brimming as I ripple and spiral and snatch a scuttling crab and crush it in my beak, then jet off, jet on. I feel the surface sink and I feel I see moonlight with my skin and is caught up in the eddies that bubble and swirl about my arms that curl and unfurl. And the moonlight envelops me, caressing my arms as they caress the kelpie floor, the kelpie shore. I snatch a scuttling crab and crush it in my beak and ripple and dance and jet and twirl across the bed of swaying weed towards the thunder and rumble that beckons and calls. That's Erin Hortle reading from The Octopus and I. Uh, in that book, she also writes from the perspective of a seal and a mutton bird and humans too. Erin was speaking to Sarah Lestrange via Skype. Sarah is, of course, the producer of this show. And Erin's book is published by Alan and Unwin. I'm down Thank you for joining me for the book show today. Remember, you can keep talking books about octopuses or not in our Facebook group. It's called the ABC Book Club. I'm Claire Nichols. I'll see you there. Open.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.